interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is The Carrie Edelman Show. Welcome to The Carrie Edelman Show. I am so excited today as we have the incredibly funny and talented screenwriter, novelist, and comedian Peter Melman joining us in a moment. So I'd like to do a brief introduction about the show and then a brief introduction for him, and then we'll bring him on. He's going to be uh, one of the unbelievable and incredibly talented people I've had the opportunity to interview on my show. I've done about 250 interviews with comedians, authors, entertainers, and the concept of this show I created several years ago was I really wanted to bring people on and give them an opportunity to share their unique life story, help them promote their products, um, especially now with everything that's been going on, unfortunately, with the pandemic. I think this is a great time to bring people on and, and really help them get the, their name out there, their products out there. Some of the people that have been on my show are um, New York Best Selling Times author Jennifer Kishan Armstrong, award-winning journalist Mike Sager, comedian Fielding Edlow, uh, world-renowned mastering engineer Mayor Applebaum, and the list goes on. So definitely check it out. Their, their podcasts are available on iTunes. Um, something I'd like to also mention is that I have a passion for entertainment. I love music and television, comedy, um, and my other passion is my background in psychology. I've done a lot of interviews. I have a doctorate degree in psychology, and I really wanted to combine those two and, like I said, create a really unique form to bring people on. Although I mentioned I have a background in psychology, I always throw out there my show is purely an entertainment show. We're not doing any therapy or assessment, but there are times where we might bring up some types of um, – psychological concepts in an educational manner. So let's do this now. Let's do a nice introduction for Peter, and then we'll bring him on. So he started his career as a sports writer for the Washington Post. His work has appeared in New York Times Magazine, GQ, Esquire, and practically every Condé Nast women's magazine. He also was the head writer and co-executive producer for the iconic hit sitcom Seinfeld, where he worked nearly all of its nine-year run. He's known for some of the most unforgettable pop cultural references, including yada yada, spongeworthy, double dipping, and shrinkage, to name a few. Um, after working with Seinfeld, when he transitioned out, he created a show with DreamWorks, which was titled It's Like You Know. And he also continues to be involved in many aspects of um, sports worlds, which is his background. He created a TV show titled on um, YouTube titled The Narrow World of Sports. And uh, he continues to dabble in stand-up comedy. He doodles under the concept of Bravely Oblivious. And uh, Peter has also published some amazing books, including Mandela Was Late, It Won't Always Be This Great, and his most recent one, which we will discuss tonight, and you can purchase it right now, titled Hashtag Me As Well, A Novel. So let's bring Peter on and uh, go from there. Hey, Peter, how are you? I'm um, pretty good, Carrie. How are you? I'm okay. How are you making out with the quarantine before we dive into your your story and your background? There's a quarantine? Well, I'm not saying uh, no, I'm, just, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I meant um, I have to say, you know, like the quarantine, I, 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 it's kind of a drag, but at the same time, I can't say it, like, significantly changes my lifestyle. You know, okay. I pretty much sit home and write anyway. I miss going out to dinner and, you know, playing basketball, but that's about it. Okay, yeah, and I know what your lifestyle and your background's right. This would be your kind of inside writing lot anyway, but, yeah, it is kind of a bummer. I agree with you. I'm not someone who's 
into going out to clubs or anything like that. But I do miss the, those things, going out to dinner and doing something like that. It's just, it's unfortunate right now. Um, it's really hard to a, write. It is really hard to write during this. In what regard? Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Are you there? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Hello? I'm here. Okay. It's just really there? hard to write during this because, you know, it just feels like the events of the world are just so heavily hanging over your head that it's hard to let your imagination run away at all. But, you know, I guess uh, yeah, I, I can't complain. I can understand that. I mean, yeah, it's challenging. I mean, it's it's very stressful for, you know, all different types of people, unfortunately, right now. Um, so, but I guess hopefully this can be somewhere that you can take yourself away a little bit when you need to, you know, kind of like decontact and move away from the news and try to, like you said, let your mind wander and get into the stuff that you write because you write unbelievable stuff. And I've been a huge fan of yours since I read Jennifer Keshen Armstrong's book, Seinfeldia, several years ago. And that's kind of how I was introduced to you and was always really looking forward to offering you an interview to come on. Well, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so let's do this to start. I always like to start from the background. Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, growing up as a kid in Queens, New York, and, you know, just give us a little background about, you know, think think back to when you were like, you know, five, six, seven, really little. What was your personality like? And then we'll start to pull in all these different aspects, your comedy, your writing, your interest in sports. I want to kind of delve into getting to the roots of like how all that stuff came to be with where you are today. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think I remember childhood quite as vividly as most people do. Um, I know that I was just like the real good boy, you know, like really trying to please and things like that. And, and you know, I, I remember like occasionally making a joke in school or, or getting people to laugh and thinking, oh, this is really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was never a behavior problem. I'm always, like, amazed at people who are, like, in their 40s and, and you know, they're like a doctor. And now, and now they talk about their childhood and talk about, you know, like, how they were such a bad behavior problem. You know, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you got into medical school because you were a behavior problem. You know, people have very revisionist histories about themselves. Mm-hmm. I know I wasn't a behavior problem, and I was, like, really, a, you know, trying to be a good kid all the time. What do you, you know, think, that's, that's, um, where do you think that came from? I mean, was that, and we'll, like I said, we'll bounce around if we need to a little bit. Was that something your parents instilled in you? Was that something just that was more maybe intrinsic that you were just, you know, I, I can definitely empathize and relate to what you're saying with wanting to please people and, you know, make a good impression and not cause problems. Where do you think that came from? You know, I think I would just see, like, bad kids. And, you know, like back then, you know, your parents would say things to you like, he's, you know, he's not a good, he's not a good kid. You shouldn't be friends with him. And I would look at, Mm -hmm. you know, people like that and say, hmm, I really don't want to be friends with them. I want to be, you know, like a nicer person than that. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
along with all the other things that parents instill, you know, and especially back then, you know, like, you know, they don't, back then they, parents seem to instill fear in you a lot, you know, don't talk to strangers, uh, don't do the, you know, like there were rules in life. And um, although I can't, although I have to say, you know, like parents now, they instill fear in other ways. You know, the kids are much more sheltered. I think I was very lucky to grow up in New York because um, even though we were in Queens, my parents were very diligent about getting us into Manhattan. And, you know, even though we were, you know, very kind of middle class, we had, we went to see Leonard Bernstein and, you know, concerts at Philharmonic Hall. And, you know, we went to baseball games in Yankee Stadium and and you know then um, when I was like in junior high my brother and I were like really into the Knicks you know so we used to you know take the subway into Manhattan and and even if a game was sold out could you you won't believe this at, at like 13 years old we would pay off an usher to get oh. to get to let us into the game Wow. Okay. So definitely. Yeah. A big fan at thir- at thirteen, we were doing bribery. Oh Somehow that gosh. didn't seem that bad to me. It just seemed really cool. Right. Right. Well, again, that was your kind of one way, if you want to look at it from this angle, of kind of breaking the rules. Because, like you said, you wanted to be the good kid and not get involved with kids that would be a bad influence. So this was like your little, you know, rebellious moment, we could say, so to speak. Yeah, I, I always say that I was not a rebellious kid, but I've been kind of—I've been a, a fairly rebellious adult. Okay, okay. Um, so, how old was your brother? Older or younger than you? Older, three years okay. older. Okay. And what is? We'll pull some of this stuff in now, and then we'll bounce around a little bit with some of the other things you got interested in when you were younger. What does he? Um, what does he do for a living? Is he involved in any aspect of entertainment? Um, yeah, he, he, um, he's a filmmaker and, uh, you know, he writes and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough road to hoe, but he's very, you know, he's really talented. Wow. Wow. What, what genre or, you know, does he focus on? Is he action or what types of things? Oh, um, no, he's much more kind of between genres, you know, I mean, he just kind of. Um, you know, kind of like in the gray areas of life. You okay. know, we both okay. we both like movies like that. You know, like we were just talking the other day about the movie Up in the um, Up in the Air, or the one with George Clooney. Okay. And you know, it's it's just this movie that doesn't really fit any genre, and we, you know. We tend to love movies like that, which, of course, are the kind of movies that you also make you also think, how did it ever get made? Right. And I can, you know, and that's a shame because I can appreciate that stuff, too. I like stuff that's a little on the outside and that isn't always fitting into some cookie-cutter box. I mean, that's what makes things creative and original, you know, but I understand and I'm sure as we get into your career and Seinfeld and stuff like that and some of the experiences you had when you left was, you know, everyone's looking for the next Seinfeld or they're looking for the next whatever pop star. And you, it, so I think 
I can very much appreciate what you're saying um, in terms of what you and your brother like when it comes to that type of stuff. Yeah. So it's okay. So you guys, right. So you're into basketball, going into the city, seeing some, you know, musical, you know, concerts and things like that. Um, As a little kid, were you someone who was interested in reading you know, in terms of just pulling a little bit in with writing and stuff, like if you did read, what types of books did you like to read? You know, it's funny. I pulled a lot of books, like, off my father's <laughs> my father's dresser. You know, like, he would have okay. these books there. And I would, like, I read, I read The Exorcist, Rosemary's nice. Baby. Nice. Um, uh, Clockwork Orange, and obviously this was in high school. Uh, you know, I mean, not I didn't read that when I was like six, but um, okay. You, you know, I read In Cold Blood, which was like amazingly influential for me. Okay, so interested? Were you interested in kind of that horror? I mean, I I, I know exactly what you're talking about with Clockwork Orange and Exorcist. I was. You know, growing up, and even to this day, I'm a, I'm a big fan of horror and that type of stuff. Um, was that something that interested you as a kid? Well, you know, we always called them monster pictures, you know. Right. So we loved, you know, I loved, like, King Kong and, um, and uh, you know, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and Frankenstein and all of that, mm-hmm. you know. I wouldn't say it was like a big influence, but, you know, I was just like a kid. You love scary movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what did your what did your parents, and we'll, like I said, bounce around a little, what did your dad do for a living? Um, he was a general contractor, you know, a construction guy and an engineer. Mm-hmm. And, and my mom um, was like an assistant to the principal of a uh, public school in Queens. Okay, nice, nice. Did any of them on the, you know, similar to like you and your brother getting involved in entertainment and writing and stuff like that, did any of them dabble in anything like that on the side? No, 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 not at all. Okay. I mean, okay. you know, my uh, right. my father used to say, God, where did all this come from? <laughs> <laughs> Was there any, Peter, any extended family members, like any aunts or uncles or relatives that maybe, you know, you see that sometimes in the family. It comes out in different, you know. Well, certainly not my aunts. and I mean, my aunt, my, on one side, my aunt and uncle, we, like, I didn't even know them. But on the other side, we were very close. And, you know, my uncle was, my uncle was an accountant and couldn't believe that, that that anybody in the world would do anything but be an accountant. Like, if you were an accountant, (laughs) your career made no sense to him. Oh, that's funny. And my okay. aunt, um, she never really worked. I don't. Well, she might have had some jobs here, and I don't know. But um, I was just telling the story about, you know, like after right after I graduated college, I um, it was my birthday in May, and um, my aunt sent me a birthday card with a ten dollar bill in it. And a month later, I got mononucleosis, and my aunt sent me a card with $50 in it. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, if I could have just, you know, gotten, you know, if, if COVID was around, then right. 
and I got it. I, 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 you know, I probably could have been like a millionaire. Right. Oh my gosh, that's funny. I mean, again, unfortunately, with everything going on, no, I can totally get your sense of humor with that. Oh gosh. Um, so, in terms of, like you said, so you're definitely someone who is interested in movies and and reading. And um, were you someone? I know you have your bravely oblivious artwork and doodles, which I absolutely love. So was that something you did as a kid too? Just to again pull all this stuff in? Were you a, um, you know someone who oh, enjoyed no. art? Um, the first thing I remember kind of liking it all was in was um, in high school. There was like a journalism class, and I was like, oh, that's interesting you know like I always really like journalism um, but um, no you know like I was I didn't get into doodling you know the, my first influencing you know like I had never really called it art I called it doodling you know and I mm-hmm. and my first influence in doodling was just my father always had architectural plans around the house and I just love the way that, you know, like they drew arrows and straight lines and lines that crossed. I don't know, for some reason, I was always kind of taken with that. Okay, and that's and that's interesting because that definitely comes across in your doodles that you do for Bravely Oblivious, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. it, when I watch TV, I'm not really watching. I mean, I, I, I kind of like half watch and half listen and most of the time I'm kind of like unconsciously doodling. Right, right. No, I love that term you used where you were like subconscious. So like you said, you're partially there but partially not. Um yeah. now how did you come up with the term bravely oblivious? And I I really like that term for the um for your artwork and doodles. Um I doodled that one day that those words bravely oblivious and mm-hmm. I think it was in reference to I was watching a comedy special by Sarah Silverman and I was thinking god her her persona is kind of like this bravely oblivious person <laughs> right. I mean you know like I'm a giant fan of hers I mean I I just think she's absolutely brilliant Definitely. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of hers, too, and I'm a big fan of Howard Stern, and yeah, so I definitely have the same, you know, when it comes to comedy and the style and sense of humor, that's that's definitely right up my alley. Um, hmm. Well, anyway, great, I mean, great word for it. I, I kind of joke around because I think of myself when you when I saw that word, and I'm like, I wish I had more of the oblivious part. Like, I feel like I have too much insight, and that makes me, you know, anxious and neurotic and, you know, all those types of things, so I, I love the term for it because it's yeah, it would be it would term. be nice to be slightly less oblivious, slightly more oblivious. Yes, yes, I wish. I wish there was like a pill for that. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, there is, okay, but so is should there? look into that. Yeah, all right. I think I'll there's a whole into in- that. Yeah. <laughs> Again, some some fodder for comedy, right? Um, Okay, so yeah, pulling a little bit in terms of, again, you like to joke around as a kid in school, people laughed at your jokes. Again, were you someone growing up who watched TV? Was there any specific type of sitcoms or, you know, comedy-influenced shows that you watched that maybe later in life came out or started to come out as a kid? I mean, were you someone interested in stand-up or anything? 
No, not at all. I wasn't even interested in show business. I didn't even watch that much TV. You know, like I could, I could, you know, there were like five shows that I watched as a kid with any consistency. You know, like I, I watched, um, I loved Get Smart. You know, that was Mel Brooks, and there was just, okay. I love that. And, um, okay. you know, and I liked, I, I watched Batman. That was really big. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I watched Star Trek with my father every Friday night. Nice. But you know, like I, other than that, I mean, like other than those, you know, other than you know, Get Smart and you know, All in the Family later. Mm-hmm. You know, I never watched anything until I liked Taxi. Okay. You know, but okay. I I was never you know. I, Everybody out here in Los Angeles, you know, and in and in the entertainment business is, you know, so into show business, you know, and stories about, you know, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. I, I don't know anything about these people. Like, none of that is interesting to me. Right, right. Okay. So, yeah, so we'll, we'll delve into later on how you get involved with, again, getting into the show business and stuff. Um, Actually, once at the Austin Film Festival, I was on a panel, and they were asking what were your comedy influences. And, you know, everybody's going Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and, you know, and this and that. And I said Woodward and Bernstein. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. So, and again, I don't think that's a bad thing, but like you said, is that challenging when you're out, you know, in somewhere like L.A., like you said, and all these people are, I don't want to say well-versed, but, in, you know, in some regards, like you said, they're familiar with all these people's backgrounds, and, and you might not be. Has that ever been, you know, challenging for you or difficult? Um, <clears throat> my first my first season at Seinfeld, you know, like my first job in entertainment, really, and I remember, like, sitting around at lunch every day with the other writers, and, you know, they were talking so much about show business, and all their jokes were about show business. And, you know, like, I remember they, they were, like, constantly trying to make Jerry and Larry laugh at lunch. And I was thinking, like, Jesus, what a crazy business. Right. I remember, like, one day after one day after one of those lunches i just you know walked into my office and i wrote down on a sh- sheet of paper my what became my mantra which was shut up and learn right. because you know i i really wanted to succeed when i got to seinfeld but i didn't know what i was doing because i didn't have mm-hmm. any background in comedy writing or dramatic structure or anything like that and um I was very nervous and, you know, it was like sitting around and trying to get the measure of things and, you know, seeing these people trying so hard to, to like right. be funny at lunch. And I was like, what's oh, that gosh. do? What's that doing for anybody? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, I can see what you're saying. Right. Just trying to, I know I, I can't think of the right word right now, but just over the top, like in terms of them trying to like get the attention of Larry and, and Jerry. Um, versus, like you said, just kind of sitting back, taking it in, absorbing it, learning from them. And we'll definitely, I think if, you know, delve in. Go ahead. I think if you want to be, like, in the entertainment industry, the worst thing you could do is be in it, like, from the minute you graduate college. You know, it's really good to get 
some life experience in something else, mm-hmm. you know, especially, you know, outside, outside of Los Angeles, you know, because, um, you know, it, it's just good to have some perspective on the outside world rather than this very, very small world of entertainment. That said, gotcha. I do want to be on the record as saying that I love Los Angeles. Oh, and I know from reading about you, I know you do. And we'll talk about how you transitioned out there. So, yeah, let's let's jump a little bit. So, high school, did you, real quick, did you play any sports growing up? Again, we know you're a huge fan of sports. We'll get into your, you know, your initial job at the Washington Post after you um, graduate from um, University of Maryland. Did you play anything, or were you just someone who enjoyed, you know, like playing anything competitively? I know you said you played basketball, and you enjoyed doing that. Yeah, I was a, I was just a non I played basketball every day, you know. Basketball wow. was it. Yeah. And did um, you play on a team, too? No, no. Oh, not, okay. So just for first of all, I was at, in high school. I gra- when I when I graduated high school, I was like five eight and a half. I'm you know I'm over, I'm six one now. Yeah. But um, you know, and I I went to base you know a real city high school. You know, we had great players. You know, we had we had guys who you know everybody was dunking and you know. It was, mm-hmm. But I got friendly with all those guys. Nice. <laughs> so just like you said, just more recreationally, you wanted to, yeah. Okay. Um, so after high school, you know, when you're applying to colleges, what did you have any idea of what you might want to do? Uh, I know that I know that your um, character Arnie Pepper. I know you you had placed him as graduating from, from uh, I think University of Wisconsin, which was something you talked about having a fondness for. So yeah, tell us about, you know, what were potentially, if you had any idea of what you wanted to major in and um, why you chose to go to University of Maryland. Um, one day after school, I was playing basketball with friends. It's like in my junior year. Like I did every afternoon. I was like on the, and I just stopped in the middle of a game and I kind of looked around, and I had this thought, this like weird insight that, and I just said, "I got to get out of here." <laughs> um, okay. And um, you know, I, I I applied to you know three colleges in University of Indiana because I had a summer camp friend who went there, um, the New York City schools. Uh, like we're as a safe school and the University of Maryland purely because it was near a big city, nine miles from Washington, D.C. It wasn't Mm -hmm. in the freezing cold locales of all the New York State schools and it wasn't that far away, you know, 200 miles. And somehow um, it just seemed like the perfect place and I kind of went there visited the school with my parents and you know my father was looking around saying god this is way too good for kids and uh, I don't know it was beautiful and everything and when I got in I was really happy I didn't exactly know what I was going to do I mean you know I, I was kind of like like once again as the good boy I was you know saying that I was going to be pre-med Okay. But that last 
but that lasted one semester um, when I got C. I got C's in both the uh, science classes I took, and then in my um, uh, second semester freshman year, I just drifted to the newspaper office and uh, walked in there and said, you know, I'd like to write. I don't even know what took me there. But, um, you know, we had one of the best... uh, we had one of the best student newspapers in the country. It, had, if, you know, before I got in there, it had won. You know, the that the previous year it won for best student daily in America. And um, I don't know. It was like exciting, and it, it, I, I have no idea exactly what took me there, but thank God it did. Right. No, that's really cool. Um, were you someone who had a talent for writing, or was it, or was it something that you had to work at? Um, I guess both. I, I don't know. I didn't. I had a sense of, you know, writing should have some, you know, some style to it. And but you know, in in journalism, what you really learned is discipline in your writing you know how to be concise and tell mm-hmm. tell the story as clearly and concisely as possible and um you know i took that very seriously you know the whole thing with your lead paragraph having the who what why where what when questions answered in that lead and um you know i don't know it was just all really exciting and it was kind of a level of discipline I never achieved anywhere else because, you know, one semester I wrote, I think, 60 articles for the paper. You know, that was like four a week. And, uh, you know, like I was covering the student government, you know, and I was just like really into it. That's great. That's great. And um, so while you're there, eventually you get an internship, right? Is that when you get the internship? Is that during your senior year with the Washington Post? Is that what leads you to eventually get a position with them? Um, actually, no. I got an intern. Oh, okay. I got an internship after my sophomore year. After that semester, when I wrote sixty articles, a journalism professor, you know, recommended me for an internship there. And, you know, so I was in, I stayed over that summer in Maryland. And, um, you know, I I didn't really take much advantage of that internship. Uh, I think I was just too too into, like, having fun. But, um, you know, I, I actually got into the post after I graduated. During the time I had mononucleosis, I wrote, I was talking to a friend who had written on the student newspaper who was a copy aide at the Washington Post, which was like a really impossible job to get. You know, that was like the foot in the door. Mm -hmm. He told me that they weren't hiring any white males, you know, because at that time, Washington, D.C. was like 80% black. Right. And they were really making an effort to, you you know, diversify their newsroom. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a job letter as a woman, a really funny job letter, okay. you know, which didn't discuss my qualifications or anything like that. 
but I wrote it as a woman uh, okay. under the name under my under the name of my dear friend Faith Cates, and um, I sent it in, and I got a letter back in the mail like a week later, uh, thanking me for my engrossing letter. And and offering me a job as a copy aide with terrible hours, you know, eight eight p.m. to three a.m. with Mondays and Tuesdays off. Okay. Now I want oh I wanted the job, but you know they were expecting a woman. Right. So I wrote another letter, enclosing the first letter and explaining why I wrote a letter as a woman. Wow. And then and. Off that, they invited me, to, and I got to meet with like every, all the major editors at the Post. Uh, you know, uh, not Ben Bradley, but you know, like I got to meet with like a, a big number of right. editors. They just wanted to meet me because I was so because it was so crazy. And again, I mean, Peter, that's I mean, talk about that is kind of I don't know, think the right words rebellious, but I mean, wow, I mean, it could have gone south. You know, what I mean, it could have gone really sour, so to speak. But luckily. You know, they understood your your sense of humor and your perspective. But, I mean, when you did that, were you concerned that this could potentially ruin an opportunity or no? Not at all. I, I, I don't know. Okay. It was just, I just, it was, I wasn't worried <laughs> okay, at all. Right. I just thought, well, you know, you got to stand out somehow. Right, right. You know, this no, was, like, you know, in the post-Watergate yeah. era when the Washington Post was pretty much the coolest place in the world. So you could right. imagine the volume of sure. you know, job applications they were getting from colleges all across the country. So, you know, right. you have to do something well, to stand great. out. Right, and I right. Kind of went over the, I went a little over the top, but, you know, it worked out. <laughs> right, which is what we'll, we'll see what your science on writing and, and other stuff, too, is, is, you know, taking that comedy and that sense of humor you have and using it in, you know, again, a very, I don't know what the right word is. You sometimes use the word, I've listened to interviews with you, where it's kind of like you're kind of bordering on certain lines, but you're not totally crossing over, you know, in an inappropriate way. Um, so, you know, I think that's a, an example of something we'll talk about a little bit later. So when, when you talked about knowing someone there as a copy aide, was that Mike Sager or no? Because I know that you guys – Met each other right at the Washington Post. Yes, no, it was that Mike Sager went to um, Emory, and um, right. you know I think he went to law school at Georgetown mm -hmm. for about five days. Yes, before he dropped out. <laughs> um, I met Mike when we were both covering a darts tournament at a hotel in Virginia. It was a like a national <laughs> darts. And we were covering it for different sections of the paper. I was covering it for sports, and he was covering it for the weekly section. And I don't know. From that, we've been friends ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, I know you work with him as his. The Sager Group is where your books are published under. So I don't. I wanted to just, you know, tie in that piece because I had him on a few weeks ago, and he was, you know, he was great. Um, Okay. Yeah. Thanks for tying that in. So you worked at you worked there for how long? About at the um, Washington Post. Was it several years? Um, it was about um, two and a half years. 
And oh, okay. then um, um, I moved back to New York for completely immature reasons. Okay, you know, well, before, trying before to get a girlfriend. Back, <laughs> hold on, hold on, before you move back, you just tell us a little bit about um, how it came to be that you worked with Howard Cassell um, doing a TV series called The Sports Geek, because I just want to hear about a little bit about your, you know, the relationship with him and how you had that opportunity, because that just sounds like unbelievable you know, experience. Yeah, I moved back to New York and, um, you know, I was looking for jobs. I was looking for a job and um, I uh, had a friend who was a writer at, a big sports writer at the Washington, at the New York Post and he um, suggested I call somebody he knew who worked at this show, Sports Beat, which was a sports journalism show, as we we used to like to call it, the sixty minutes of sports, but okay. it was a half hour and it was all about sports. But it was kind of like the forerunner to the show that um, is on, you know, Real Sports with Brian Gumble on HBO, mm-hmm. and um, I sent in a job letter at the exact right moment and got in for an interview and then had an interview with Howard Cosell, who, you know, I kind of revered growing up. You know, he was the biggest thing in the world, and, you know, I just loved him. And um, I got the job, and for, you know, two and a half years, I was, uh, you know, we had a very small staff, and so you got to do everything, you know, I did some writing and, you know, I worked the Chiron and, you know, all, all, and it was a very small, tightly knit group. And I got, but it was like being at the center of the sports universe, you know, because Howard Cosell was absolutely the biggest name in sports media. Right. So, um, you know, the people I got to meet and things like that, it was just, you know, endlessly fascinating and, you know, Howard was such a controversial figure that there was always this Sturm and Drang going around him. And um, it was a fantastic two and a half years. Wow. Did he in any way influence your sense of humor a little bit? Because I, I know you've mentioned he has, and I, you know, I apologize, I don't know a ton about him um, in terms of sports and that type of stuff and what he did. But I know you said that he was really a funny guy. Was was any of that kind of some spillover influence I, I, on you? I used to kid Jerry Seinfeld that he was the second funniest boss I ever had. <laughs> and, you know, Howard was just, he, he had kind of this, I don't know. He, the, the thing is, he was so famous, and he really enjoyed being famous. He enjoyed what he could get away with being famous. You know, I mean, he would just, you know, go up to people on the street and say say outrageous things to them, and they would, you know, like, look up and see it was him, and they would, like, laugh hysterically. He would... Right. You know, we, we were once in a limousine driving driving west in Manhattan on a super crazy hot day and as we were approaching one avenue there was a woman on the uh, waiting at the curb who was an obvious model you know she was stunning and tall and spectacular and the two <laughs> cars in front of us almost collided and um and we we pull up and Howard rolls down his window and calls out to the model and says to her, 
honey, you've got to be more careful. <laughs> like she caused the accident. Right, right. Oh, my gosh. And, and and she looked, and she recognized Howie Cosell, and she just laughed so hard. <laughs> and, you know, that... You know, he could get away with all these things that, you know, in in light of the Me Too movement, like, you know, would be considered inappropriate or, you know, not okay. All sure. these expressions, all these expressions that drive me crazy, you know. It's not okay. Right. You know, like we're such a whiny culture now. <laughs> Nobody can take a joke. I, uh, well, we'll get into your book in a little bit, so we can definitely comment on, you know, how that ties in there in your new book. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. No, that's that's just, it sounds like it was an incredible experience for you to to have that opportunity to work with him and the sports beat. So, and in the meantime, too, were you, when you're, when you're doing sports beat, were you also starting to dabble in freelance writing and getting involved with, you know, all the major publications like GQ and Esquire and the women's Condé Nast magazines, like just tie in how you got involved with that. No, I wasn't. Um, working at Sportsbeat was really a full-time job. I mean, you know, okay. the funny thing is, you know, we'd be in an editing room putting the show together every Friday night and be in there for three hours. I mean, until three in the morning and, you know, doing things that now we could probably do in 45 minutes, Right. <laughs> you know, right. but sure. then it was really cumbersome work. So um, I wrote exactly one article while I was at ABC sports, um, I used to play basketball on Tuesday nights, every Tuesday night, and um, I'd go out with my friends after. And in the winter, you know, I'd be wearing like a hooded sweatshirt under like a brown leather bomber jacket and walk home like 25 blocks. And then uh, on some nights, I'd find myself walking behind a woman on the street, and I could tell that she was scared. Like here was this <laughs> right. guy in a hood, you know, and right. I... And I would cross to the other side of the street just to, you know, stop her from being scared. But I I had written this piece about, um, you know, just by, she, by my sheer gender, how threatening I can be and, mm -hmm. you know, how depressing that was. And, you know, I, I think I sent it out to one place and they rejected it and then I didn't do anything with it. And then, you know, after I got laid off from ABC... And that's how I, my career at ABC Sports ended. Um, they had massive layoffs after tons wow. of corporate waste for the 84 Olympics. You know, they just ran out of money. Um, you know, when I started freelance writing for magazines, which came about totally by accident, I, I, di I did send that article and have it published, I think, in Glamour magazine. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, so this is where you're kind of getting your foot in the door now with the magazine world. Yeah, it was kind of accidental. I, you know, I I was home looking for, you know, thinking about what am I going to do next and looking for a job, and one day I had come up with this idea of writing an article called The We Just Broke Up Last Night Diet, <laughs> which was a kind of an account of the of what you eat for like the next five days after you've been dumped. Oh, that's funny. Oh my gosh. Okay. And I kind of like blindly called an editor at 
Glamour magazine. Didn't know her at all, and she was kind of interested in it. And I and you know that was when it was kind of possible to get in touch with people by phone. Right. Um, right. And she said, you know, it's not right for us, but I think they'll love it at Mademoiselle magazine. And she sent it down there, and they loved it, and they published it. Wow. And so right then and there, I had, you know, connections at both Mademoiselle and Glamour. And, you know, they they were very receptive to hearing a guy's point of view. So, awesome. um, you know, I write a lot. Right. Right, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, like you said, sometimes it's these accidental moments, and that's what I love to hear from my interviewees is, you know, these little golden nuggets, these little moments where, you know, things start to shift a little bit. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Well, yeah. you know, luck is everything. <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of it, too. I, I hear you. It's Yeah, I know. It's being in the right place at the right time, and this woman from Glamour, you know, fortunately took a liking to your stuff and was – more than willing to go out of her way and ship it somewhere, which, you know, most people, well, we're not going to get into the personality dynamics of that, but, you know, most people aren't willing to help others out. And I think that's, that's such a shame. I think there's so many opportunities to go around if people can support each other. So that's really cool that she did that. I mean, Um, you know, I have a much rougher time getting contacts with editors now, even though, you know, I'm something of a known quantity. Sure. You know, just you know, I write something now, and I think, oh, this might be good for like the New York Times style pages. Mm-hmm. And just getting in touch with any editor is like impossible. And you know, like I have, was, to, you know, like what do you, what, call through a million contacts just to get an email address, and then if I actually get any response at all, it's like a miracle. Wow. <laughs> but you know. And what do you? What do you, I mean, I'm sure it's multifaceted, um, I'm sure there's many variables, but what do you think, what do you think the main thing is? I mean, is it just that, I, I don't, is it the personality of these people, or is it just that these people are inundated and they just don't get back? Like, what do you think is behind some of that? I think there's a general nervousness, especially in, you know, there's a, there's a special, there's kind of a nervousness in all in all communication fields right now, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, magazines, especially, you know, the, the ones that actually are sent out to newsstands, you know, they're worried that, you know, that they'll no longer exist in five years. And, you know, newspapers, you know, the New York times is doing great, but they're the only one who's great. So they're, they're probably very swamped and very nervous about their jobs. And, you know, the landscape is probably nothing of what they anticipated when they graduated college and decided I want to be an editor, you know? So, I mean, I don't really blame them. It's a very nervous time, you know, and, you know, just in, in writing in books and in, um, in magazines, you know, these fields are just very dicey right now, and they have been for about, you know, the last four or five years at least. 
No, you're right. I mean, yeah, I mean, some of the magazines I love, and I love to just run and walk on a treadmill, and I, I'm still, like, I like to have something in my hands. Like, I really don't want to be looking at an iPad or something, and, you know, I love Glamour. That's no longer in print. I mean, there's some that, like you said, it's a shame, and I'm so disappointed that some of these magazines write. They're either going out of print, or I think I got an L magazine recently, but they, they combined, like, June, July, and August as their summer months, so it's not even like you get three magazines. So I, yeah. I can totally I can totally see what you're saying with that, and it's that is disappointing. Um, I mean, you know, like in the '80s, Elle magazine, you know, their covers were so eye eye catching. You know, you you'd mm-hmm. be walking down the street past a newsstand, and you'd stop in your tracks because the, you know they'd have a cover of Elle McPherson, and you just couldn't believe right. how like inventive it was. You know, like you, you know there was. She had covers, you know, they had covers of her, like, wearing dark sunglasses, which, you know, nobody did because, you know, the model's eyes were apparently so important. And, um, <laughs> you know, like, who? I, I never could have imagined that it would come a day when, you know, Elle magazine would put out one issue over the summer, you know, and Time magazine would be like the size of a, would be like a menu, you know, three right. pages. right. Well, and yet that's a good point you make, too. A lot of these magazines, yeah, I was reading, again, I have so many, like, old ones, and I just, you know, before I recycle it, if I haven't read it, I'm going to read it. I think it was an old Vogue, and it was, like, you know, from maybe four years ago, and it was enormous. And then you look at them today, and it has nowhere near the types of advertisements and articles, et cetera. So, right, you've seen it pare down a lot, too, which is, again, it's just really disappointing. I mean, that's something in my leisure time that I do like to do. Um, but anyway, enough enough of that, but thank you for sharing some perspective um, with the magazine industry and, you know, the diciness right now of it. So let's, um, yeah, so let's fast forward a little bit. So what, you know, again, you're back in New York, you did the sports beat, you're writing for magazines. So tell us about what makes you decide around 1989 to say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to move out to LA. Um, Did you have a job lined up? Was it just kind of, you know, a moment where you said, again, I need to change the scenery you know, just share us a little bit about that, and then we'll dive into how you meet, you run into Larry David out there. Yeah, it was all about just deciding I needed a change of scenery and thinking, you know, I could do the same thing that I'm doing here in L.A. And I was at the 84 Summer Olympics and spent, I think, three or four weeks in L.A., and I was just, like, looking around saying, why does everybody make jokes about this place? It's so much fun. You know, I really like it. <laughs> Right. And um, I don't know, you know, so it was just, uh, you know, it just seemed like a good thing to do. And, you know, there's a lot of freelance magazine writers in New York at the time. But, you know, if you move to L.A. and, you know, you ha- you could get a lot of assignments and things like that from New York publications because there weren't as many people out here doing what you were doing. So okay. I moved out here. I moved to Venice. It was really cool. I loved it there. Um, and uh, one day I bumped into Larry David, who I had met in New York exactly twice. And how did you, real quick, how did you meet him in New York? What was, just give us a, a bullet or two behind what, you know, how you, you became to, had that chance to meet him. I was in a summer share house in in the Hamptons, and 
one of the people in our house brought Larry out as a ge- as a guest for one day. He didn't even stay the night, which is kind of like now I totally understand. I mean, you know, we <laughs> we hung out all day, went out to dinner, and um, and he drove home, and and um, so, you know, we kind of like got along, had some laughs, and mm-hmm. old. I I told him. Um, that I had heard some of the jokes that he made in stand up and I was quoting them and, uh, you know, <laughs> and I thought they were hysterical and, right. um, you know, so we got along and then I saw him at one other thing and then, uh, I moved to LA and I bumped into him and he just said, you know, I'm doing this little TV show with Jerry Seinfeld. Maybe you could, uh, you know, write a script for us. And, um, I guess he didn't know that, he knew I was a writer, but he didn't know that I'd never written, you know, dialogue or fiction. Right, right. Um, so um, I gave him, you know, my, I gave him my most um, notorious or most standout article that I had written in for the New York Times. I had written a piece about um, a breakup I had had and um, how I spent an entire day after the breakup, you know, it was a Saturday and I really didn't know what to do with myself as far as solo weekends were concerned because I was spending all my weekends with her up at Yale Business School. So I was like walking around the city and um, I thought I spotted a celebrity, which my friends and I were really great at. We talk about that all the time, you know, like spotting kind of obscure celebrities. And then when I got close to this person, it wasn't who I thought it was. (laughs) <laughs> and so I just decided I was going to spend the entire day walking around Manhattan until I spotted a celebrity, and then I would go home. And so that was what the article was about. And it was funny, but it was also bittersweet, sure. which, Seinfeld, which Seinfeld never was, you know. So, right. um, <laughs> you know, but somehow, you know, Larry passed the article on to Jerry, and Jerry liked it, and uh, I got they asked me if, you know, they called me in and asked me to pitch some ideas for the, for the show. That's amazing. And again, that's another moment of, like you said, these kind of random moments where it's just the right place and some luck. And of course you have a huge, um, you know, talented background in writing, so to speak, you know what I mean? So it's not like you don't have anything, but it's just interesting how all those things kind of culminate and come together. Um, so so yeah so I mean so now you're you're I remember the first episode you wrote was the the apartment um, which was a great episode and then from there basically you're you're pretty much on board right for pretty much the whole run of nine seasons I mean I know you kind of transition out after the whole yeah no I, I got this, uh, go ahead yeah I um yeah I off that one kind of beginner's beginner's luck, you know, I wrote that script and um and it came out it came out okay and uh, Larry and Jerry really liked it and so I I got on staff and that's when I realized that I had no idea what I was doing in this and um this is going to be a a big new adventure but you know like as as soon as they called me and told me that they really liked the the script and they were going to do it. Um, I had this inkling, this sudden weird 
feeling like my life is about to change dramatically. Mm-hmm. Which it did. I mean, that's unbelievable. And at this time, I mean, again, Seinfeld, you know, again, reflecting back to uh, Jennifer Kishan's Armstrong's book, you know, and it was just a fascinating book on the history. I mean, you know, people see this iconic show, but the struggles they had in the beginning, because, again, similar to, I think, an interesting theme we talked about is, you know, not necessarily fitting into this cookie cutter thing, and Seinfeld clearly didn't. I mean, and with the luck of Rick Ludwin from, you know, the, the VP of uh, NBC, you know, these people that kind of came on board and, and let them do what they wanted to without much input. I, I think yeah, it was such a blessing. Go ahead. It was a miracle. I mean, you know, I always say that Seinfeld was a show that fell through the cracks. And by that, I mean, in in television, network television, a show that falls through the cracks is not an example of a good show that doesn't make it. It's an example of a good show that does make it because, mm-hmm. you know, good shows are, are ruined and canceled all the time. But a great show that manages to sidestep like every minefield that's in your way and somehow be a success like Seinfeld did, you know, that's that's falling through the cracks, and it's really right. kind of like a miracle. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the history from it was just fascinating. Um, and, and I think this was – I was thinking more about this, like, during the week when I was doing all my research and prepping the interview. You know, in some ways, and we'll, you know, get through Seinfeld, talk a little bit about, of course, your show that you did. It's like you know – you know, you had no background in TV. So, you know, you're entering this world where everything is kind of done for a sitcom, which really isn't done that way. You know, there's no real writer's room. There's no bouncing ideas off of people. You guys are kind of one man to himself, you know, writing your scripts and, and pitching those, which is, of course, different from how other sitcoms typically work. So I, I kind of was trying to pull in that bizarro world thing because Seinfeld in its own way was, was its own bizarro world. Um, because when you step outside and you start to write for other sitcoms, there's more structure and more organization where Seinfeld didn't have that. If you want to elaborate on that, I thought it was just an interesting observation. Yeah, I used to kind of like walk around the lot, you know, because we weren't, as you said, we weren't, we didn't have a writer's room and we were on our own. And, you know, just, I, able to just kind of wander around the lot and, you know, maybe think of, you know, that would kind of be my way of thinking about things. And sometimes I had friends at other shows and I would like just pop in and they'd be in this room all day long. And I think, Oh God, thank God I'm not them. <laughs> right. I, I never could have, you know, I mean, if I were, if if the first show I was on was, you know, Friends, I would have been, you know, fired in no time because, you know, you know, sitting in a room and and shouting out jokes and trying to sell one joke, you know, till three o'clock in the morning was just not for me. Right, right. You know, Seinfeld and, and, actually allowed you to be a writer. Right. Whereas you that's know, amazing. I mean, and again, what a, what an amazing first opportunity to get, you know, getting your feet wet in this, this sitcom TV world. I mean, wow. You know, the timing couldn't have been better. Um, were you someone, again, let's, let's pull in a little bit because I know you do some stand-up and things like that. Were you someone who, like Jerry and Larry, you know, was into observational humor and, and taking these 
absurdities and the, these kind of, you know, I don't know, things, you know, these things in everyday life that are so, like the minutia. Were you someone who looked at that stuff or did you have to start to train your mind to get into that style of, of writing and observation? Well, both. Because, you know, okay. I wrote a lot of those articles, like I was saying, for the women's magazines, you know, that were very observational mm-hmm. and, you know, and trying to be funny about it, you know, like what it's like to date a vegetarian and things like that, you know. And, <laughs> right. And I would, you know, write jokes about that, you know, and be, and, you know, like the male side of breaking up, you know. And so, you know, I did a lot right. of articles that, you know, we're somewhat along the lines of stuff that happened at Seinfeld. But, you know, at Seinfeld, you know, the whole – I realized that the whole thing was to tell Larry and Jerry an, a story idea in one sentence and make them laugh. Oh, my gosh. You know, and that was the goal. And, you know, that I was pretty good at. I You know, and I definitely had to adjust to Larry – sensibility um which was also you know which was also possible because of the magazine writing because you know when you write for GQ one week and Mademoiselle the next week and the New York Times the next week you know you have your sensibility but you have to change it a little bit right to accommodate who you're writing for so you know that that part of it came easy for me. You know, as far as changing my sensibility to Larry and Jerry's view of the world, and um, you know, as little as I knew about dramatic structure and how to you know how how to build the structure of an entire half-hour TV show, you know, that part was really difficult for me. But coming up with ideas for episodes. I was really good at right from the beginning. Right. I can see what you're saying now. Yeah, exactly. From your, your experience with, like you said, working with these various different types of magazines and who you're writing for. Sure. So that's, that's great to see how your background, right. At least that stuff was there. It was just more adjusting yourself to this kind of new format or medium, so to speak. Um, Mm. So yeah, let's, let's bring in a few of, of course, your, like I said, your most iconic and, you know, pop culture terms that people will never forget. Um, so double dipping, you know, which, which is, which is great. Unfortunately, you see that happen and you cringe. So where did that come from? I went to a party um, <laughs> upstairs at an apartment uh, where I lived um, on the Venice canals and uh, it was somebody Somebody double dipped a chip and somebody else said, you know, that's disgusting. You shouldn't do that. And I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. And, you know, then, you know, coming up with the term double dip was like no stroke of genius. I mean, you know, that was kind of obvious. Right. And, um, but, you know, you just looked, you know, my whole life got to be looking for little moments like that. Right. Right. And Spongeworthy, that's a funny one, because that one you were literally, right, you were driving somewhere and something came on the radio and and you had this idea, right, of, of God forbid, Elaine, right, buys out, you know, whatever's left of this contraception. <laughs> yeah, I had heard on NPR that the Today Sponge was going out of business and... Um, <laughs> 
I immediately thought, oh, my God, what if Elaine is a sponge user? She would probably try to buy up as many as she can. But if she only got a limited number, it would change her whole screening system for who she sleeps with. Right. And, you know, like that was that kind of thought used to happen to Larry David all the time where he would have one thought and all of a sudden the whole story would just open up right, right in his mind. That happened to me exactly once. And uh, that was it. The sponge was the only time where I had a thought and the whole story kind of just laid itself out right in front of me. But, you know, Larry, that happened all the time for him. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, and, and let's talk a little bit about, of course, yada, yada. I mean, again, you put a tremendous amount of work and had a major impact, as we know, on Seinfeld and, and pretty much the nine seasons, as we said. So yada, yada, tell us a little bit about how that concept came up and then also pull in how, you know, you were being, that episode was being nominated. Um, and I, I apologize, was it the Emmys? I apologize if I got yes. it wrong. Okay, it was the Emmys. No, it was, okay, I just wanted to make yeah, sure. it was the Emmys. Okay. Yeah, and then pull in how, you know, this episode is now being nominated for, you know, an award and it's up against, you know, Ellen and this some puppy episode or something. I never really watched Ellen. Um, so, yeah, tell us about how you came up with Yada Yada, how that storyline came up, and then, then pull in the story behind um, the Emmys and, and what happened with that. It's funny, but I, you know, in about, I would say, like in my last two years in New York, I had had a lunch with an editor, and at one point she was telling a story, and she said, and yada, yada, yada. And I thought to myself, oh, that's kind of funny. I never heard that. (laughs) And I don't think I ever heard it again. But the weird thing is, you know, then like, you know, eight, nine years later, I'm at Seinfeld, and for some reason that that lunch pops into my head, and I think about that yada, yada, and I'm thinking, you know, that could really cover all manner of sins. You know, right. you could say yada, yada and just gloss over things that are like really awful. And so that was how the idea came about. And, um, you know, I, I really did even think of yada, yada as being something that would turn into some kind of big catchphrase because, you know, I had this other one in that same episode you know, one of my friend, my closest friend um, converted to Judaism. And, you know, one day when we were hanging out, he made kind of a Jewish joke. And I, uh, and for some reason I had this thought of like, God, I wonder how long it took him to feel comfortable making Jewish jokes. And how funny would it be if it was like a day? Right. And <laughs> like, so I had the idea of somebody converting to Judaism and, you know, that led into the whole thing with anti-dentite. Right. And I thought anti-dentite right. was the thing that was going to really catch on. But, you know, whatever. It was yada yada. And um, it was the last episode that I wrote while I was on staff, you know. And um, I just thought it was a really good one to get out on because, you know, at that point the show had gotten so big and the budget for the show was so unlimited that, you know, we're doing kind of like a lot of episodes that, you know, for me wasn't, weren't, you know, like real Seinfeld vintage episodes. You know, they weren't small slices of life. They were big things, you know, like the Puerto Rican day parade and stuff like that. You know, and I wasn't interested in big episodes like that. 
So, um, you know, yada yada was pretty small and very slice of life and could have been, you know, fit in perfectly with, you know, season two. And so I thought that was a good one to get out on. And um, then, uh, you know, then the episode got nominated for an Emmy. And, um, you know, I think most other years it would have won, but that was the year that Ellen had the episode where she came out of the closet. Right. And it was, and it was a very, you know, kind of moving, emotional, melodramatic episode, which, you know, probably shouldn't win for comedy, but, you know, but if you can make people cry, you can win in, you could win an Emmy for comedy, which again, doesn't make that much sense, but, um, you know, so went to the Emmys, uh, the award, the award for best written episode was like the second or third ep- third award of the night, and um, and Ellen won, and um, you know, and uh, I got a a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of hot water after that because I just kind of joked to an L.A. Times reporter that uh, you know I I was up for another Emmy for best show, you know, for the be- for you know Seinfeld was up for best show and we lost to Frasier. So I had made this joke about how, you know, I lost to Ellen for coming out of the closet and lost to Frazier for never coming out of the closet. Right. <laughs> I got a little bit of, you know, if I said that now, right. I'd probably be, if I'd be in prison, you know. Right. Oh, gosh. So, but again, what, you know, what a major, you know, impact you had, Peter, on the show. What a major career with that show. Um so again, congratulations for everything you did. I, like I said, I'm a huge Thank fan you. of the show. Huge fan <laughs> of you. After, like I said, I was able to be introduced through Jennifer's book to you. Um, so again, just congrats. All um, right, so let's. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Let's dive into <laughs> spend a little bit of time on now after Seinfeld, you transition and you get a, you know, you get a job opportunity with um, DreamWorks, and this is where you write your show called "It's Like You Know." So just now, give us a few highlights of, of that show. Um, I know you had a couple of seasons with it, and it sounded like it, it had, again, some, it wasn't, again, I know you weren't trying to reinvent Seinfeld, but, you know, tell us a little bit about the background of this, this guy moving out to L.A., and give us a little bit of that, and then we'll delve into your, your latest book. Yeah, it was pretty much a show about, you know, L.A. through the eyes of of a New York, of a New Yorker, and, um you know, it had a lot of Seinfeld influence, but, you know, it also had a lot of um, aspects to it that I couldn't do on Seinfeld. So I just tried to do them on my own show. And there was a lot of experimental episodes. Um, you know, one of them was one episode was an entire documentary about a very common relationship in the and um and you know it was it was very re- rewarding it was very difficult you know i was doing you know the lion's share of the writing myself and um mm-hmm. you know it was it was really re- rewarding you know like to run a show and realize that you know you have like this cast and crew of 120 people who are working so hard to make you know your ideas come out well wow. uh, it was just it, it was really kind of a humbling and just 
really, you know, just such a gratifying experience, you know, and I just really loved all those people who worked on the show, and, um, you know, I, I was never, you know, one of the snotty writers who didn't talk to, uh, you know, crew people, you know. I mean, I got to the point where, you know, cameramen would be offering jokes because, you know, I opened it up, you know, I, I, I wanted people to feel like they were part of things, and, you know, cameramen would say, hey, what if he said this, you know, and like, or I would say to cameramen, do you think that's funny? And they couldn't, they were like, looking around like they couldn't believe that an executive producer was asking for their opinion, so, you know, it was really kind of a great experience. That's great. Yeah, so real quick, Peter, are you on the network part? But you know, again, I'm not going to complain. Right. right. Are you breaking up a little bit? I, I just want to ask you about the connection. For some reason, the connection just got a little fuzzy. Are you? Let me hear you on your end because you've been breaking up on my I end. I think it's. Uh, I'm. I'm hearing a little on your end, but does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds good now. Yeah. Yeah. For a couple of minutes okay. there, I don't know what happened. Okay. No, that sounds fine. Um. Yeah. But again, I think in terms of like you said, just that experience now you're kind of the really really the head of the you know show so to speak in terms of all these different people under you um and then the challenge was was the challenge basically that you know i think that sitcom when you went when you entered that in terms of the structure and what they wanted were there more people giving you directives and how they wanted things to go versus the kind of free reign you had on seinfeld yeah um you know that work was uh you know ABC and you know they were um you know very involved I would say they right. were very invasive but they would say involved um and you know one of the real eye opening moments was kind of realizing that networks really hated Seinfeld you know they liked the show as fans but they hated it because it broke all their rules you know the characters right. weren't likable and things like that. They were they weren't good to each other. <laughs> right. You know they in fact they go out of their way to screw each other over every episode. But then you know the next episode they're sitting in the coffee shop having a great time and right. ready to do it again. You know, but right. you know it was it was very eye opening that Seinfeld didn't change anything. You know, it didn't change the rules one bit. In fact, if anything, it retrenched the rules, you know, that they were saying, okay, we're not going to let them get away with this, you know, because, you know, Andy Ackerman d directed the pilot to It's Like You Know, and he was, mm -hmm. you know, the Seinfeld for years. And, um, you know, one of the conditions of picking up the show is that Andy Ackerman was not allowed to direct the, the episodes because... Um, Oh, man. They didn't want him directing because they felt like Andy and I were too much of a united front against them. Oh, that's a shame. So, you know, you know that was right. kind of painful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when you have a rapport like that with someone, too, I mean, you, you know them, you've worked with them forever. I mean, that's, wow, that's, that's disappointing. Oh, yeah. But... But again, I mean, you've had some major, major career moments. You continue to. Um, so let's do this for time purposes, because, again, I could keep you on forever, but I don't, I don't want to keep you on forever. <laughs> um, so me as well, of course, is your, your new novel. And, um, again, here's where you're 
you know, taking this observation and this major, you know, unfortunately situation, and I, I want to make, you know, and I'm sure you'll make this clear too, you're not mocking it. Um, you're not rejecting the movement. You're, you're kind of satirizing just how something can be innocuous, a comment or a joke someone makes, and it spirals out of control, you know, with the whole social media and all that stuff. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about how you got the idea, because I think you got this idea almost two decades ago. So, yeah, share with us a little bit about this idea, how long it took you to write the book, um, so we can just promote that today, too. Yeah, I, you know, it's it, it was funny because, um, you know, in the, in the book, the character makes is a sports writer, and he makes one little offhanded joke. And um, that joke is recorded by another sports writer and put out on Instagram and, you know, becomes like, oh, my God, look what this guy said, you know, and it becomes viral and, you know, like a million people are, after, are you know, thinking that, you know, all of a sudden he's basically Harvey Weinstein. Right. You know, part of part of the inspiration for it is, um, you know, like I, I was always wondering what day-to-day life is became like after, you know, it, all the news came out about Harvey Weinstein or um, Matt Lauer or mm-hmm. Louis C.K. Like, could they go to lunch with their daughters or, you know, can they walk the street? You know, that kind of stuff was just fascinating to me, like what their lives turned into. You know, so that's what a lot of the book is about. And, um, you know, and also a lot of the book is, you know, just about the harshness of of political correctness. You know, I I have a very um, conflicted point of view on political correctness because, you know, to some degree, I think it's really good. You know, we should be much more sensitive about people's sensitivities right but at the same time like everything else it always goes too far you know everybody wants to be the most pious of every in every movement and you know then it just gets to like ridiculous places so um you know the the actual joke that he says was an idea that i had given i had told aaron sorkin about when he when I was doing it's like you know he was doing sports night on ABC so I had uh, given him this idea of a sports writer saying something sports related that was kind of offensive could be seen as offensive to women and you know what would happen to uh, the sportscaster who said it and Aaron loved the idea but you know both of our shows got canceled pretty much at the same time so he never got to use it so um, I had that lying around, you know, 20 years later. And, uh, wow. So, uh, you know, you get a chance to pretty much use everything if you hang around long enough. <laughs> Definitely. Um, how long did it take you to write this book? Um, eight months. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I just loved writing it. And, you know, I'm not – a disciplined person, you know, I'm not somebody who gets sits down at, you know, nine o'clock and, you know, closes the door and, and writes for nine hours a day. I do it at the, when I feel like the only discipline I put on myself is that I want to make a little progress every day, even if it's just mm-hmm. one paragraph. 
So, okay. you know, the chances are if you write one paragraph, you're going to write more. <laughs> so, right. um, and I was just, I don't know, I was just really loving writing it. And both the novels, um, I've written it. It won't always be this great, too. I don't know. I just got swept along in it and really loved writing them. And so it wasn't it wasn't a labor, you know. It was just enjoyable. It was, you know, it was like a, a fun game to see where this goes because I never know where it's going to end. Right, right. Is it diff- I and mean, I don't think that, I mean, I think this is a rhetorical question. Is it difficult for you to get into the character? Because it doesn't seem like it is, you know, with, with Arnie Pepper, and I love that name. Can you, is there any, how did you come up with that name? Is it symbolic of anything? Um, my godson's name is J-Mo Pepper. Okay. <laughs> and... Um, I just thought Pepper sounded like a good name for like a sports columnist. You know, they have that kind, right. you know, just it yeah. just seemed like a kind of like a real active voice kind of name. So, uh, you know, and Arnie, uh, I there was a there was a major character in the previous in my previous book. It won't always be this great named Arnie, and I love that character. So I said, I think I'll go with another Arnie. Nice. You know, nice. these things are so. They're so random, you know. Mhm. But so that's in the terms fun of getting, of it. yeah, absolutely. And in terms of getting into the character, you know, I've done some reading because I have an interest in, you know, I have some ideas and things like that, you know, floating around. But, you know, is it hard to get into that character? Um, for no, you? I don't know why. It just, um, you know. The the character kind of takes on its own life, you know. And, mm-hmm. You know, I I have there's kind of a rant he got, you know, when he's accused of you know being anti-feminist in the beginning of the book, or or even worse, being a complete misogynist. You know, he he has this inner monologue where he's basically stating his case about how he's been at the forefront of writing about women's sports for his whole career. So there's mm-hmm. like a seven there's like a seven page monologue in there. And <laughs> you know, once you write something like that, you're kind of already in the character's head, you know, it really right. gets you kick started just because the whole thing is inside your head. And somehow it's almost like a stream of conscience, consciousness. So, um, you know, it wasn't very hard after that to just continue along the same lines. Nice, nice. And I always, you know, again, I want to hear you say this, but, you know, you say with this book, too, that, you know, people are almost like waiting to be offended, you know, and jump on that, you know. And I know you've mentioned that in some other um you know, interviews and things like that, if you can elaborate on, you know, your perspective with that. I'm just amazed at how we're in an America right now that is so hard to shock and so easy to offend. You know, like, you know, as you mentioned, I've been, you know, dabbling in stand-up and it's just amazing what you can make jokes about and what you can't. You know, I I see people making jokes that are like the raunchiest sex jokes in the world, and everybody's laughing and blah, blah, blah. 
And, you know, I make one little joke about, you know, like I, I, I have this one line um, about, you know, going to the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles and seeing an exhibit about Islam. And I say, God, you know, I realize that it's really a very beautiful religion and you can't let 75 million bad apples spoil the whole bunch. Right. And, you know, that's a little, you know, it's okay. It's like making a joke about Muslims. But, you know, sometimes I get like, you know, like people, you could hear their breaths being taken away. And, you know, I, I don't see how that is like, you know, just there's so much. People are just sitting there waiting to be offended. I don't know if they're more gratified by hearing a comedian say something that offends them than hearing something that amuses them. But, you know, they're not at all shocked by the absolute raunchiest humor imaginable, you know, and, and there's so many comedians who just try to push buttons like that. Mm -hmm. And yet they're so on the lookout for something that where they could go, oh, that's inappropriate or, oh, that's, you know, that's not okay. You're like, you know, just lighten up. Right. You know, I keep on thinking, right. I, I'm sure you're too young to have seen All in the Family. But I, I mean, think... it was, yeah, I was really, I know we, I know the show. I never really, you know, got into it even like years later with reruns. But, but you know, elaborate on what you were going to say. You know, I mean, it's, you know, Archie Bunker is this character who's right. a racist and anti-Semitic and anti-gay and everything. And he's so upfront with it. And the show was so great and so funny. And I really have this idea that I, I was thinking about like writing a column suggesting that CBS just take all the family and put it back on TV again. Just so it's so over, it's so over the right. top in what, would be offensive to today's sensibility that I think would do everybody a whole lot of good. Gotcha. Right. I mean, yeah, so I can't, like you said, I can't comment much because I hadn't, I mean, I'm, like I said, I know the concept of it, but I'm not very familiar with the actual, you know, watching the episodes and stuff. But no, I mean, yeah, everyone, right, has their own perspective and opinion on things, and yeah, sometimes people right, can take things in different ways, we'll say. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, people now, you know, I, you know, people my age, they, they'd see the, they'd see the move, you know, every Woody Allen movie, and they saw the movie Manhattan, and they would say, oh my God, that was my favorite Woody Allen movie. It was most, so brilliant. For years and years and years, they'd always say, Manhattan, that was the most brilliant movie. And then they get married, and they have a daughter, and because in the movie Woody is dating a 17-year-old, they hate the movie now, because... Um, you know, because they have a daughter. You right. know, it's so ridiculous. You know, like, you know, you could be sensitive about things and, you know, sure. and not want your daughter to be, you know, dating someone age inappropriate, but that doesn't mean you have to, you know, dismiss a form of art that deals with that subject. You know, right. I, I don't know. Like, you really got to no, be dying to be offended in order to just completely change your opinion on a piece of art that you once loved. 
Right, right. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting way to look at it in terms of that way, right? I think people, you know, like you, in this example you're given, I think there's this, like, mutual exclusiveness. Like, it's, you know, you, you can't, like you said, appreciate the art, but also have a daughter because of what happens in that, you know, that movie, that piece of art. So, you know. But, I mean, thank you for yeah, sharing. And, Go ahead. And, you know, it, bad things happen, and, you know, it's a writer's job to, re, you know, <laughs> to report on them. Right, right. You know, people so do really, inappropriate yeah. things. Yeah. I, I mean, mean they were probably five Seinfeld episodes we couldn't even do now. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm sure it would have been very challenging. I mean, even like, we won't get into it now, but even the office, like I had never watched the office and I thought maybe a year ago I started to watch some of it. Cause again, I love the observational humor. That's totally up my alley. And people are like, you know, if you really like Larry David and Seinfeld, you really should check out the office. So I eventually did get into it. And I mean, Peter, some of the stuff they did on that show, I was just like, I don't know how they got away with it because I don't think they could get away with it today. And it wasn't stuff that was so over the top with these like you would say, these one-liners that had, you know, whatever type of content to it, you know, it could be interpreted in a lot of different ways. We'll just put it that way. Um, so, but with that being I mean, said, you know, there there are deft ways to handle offensive subjects, you know. I mean, right. Larry David pulled off 22 minutes on masturbation, you know, so you could right. pretty much do anything. Right. So what's what's next for you? I know you're working on promoting the book, but do you have any other projects or things in the works that you want to share? Um, no. <laughs> I really, I, I'm kind of just, you know, really in a lull right now, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what to write next. And, um, okay. you know, I have some ideas bouncing around my head, but um, I don't know. I really... Uh, I'm 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 at, I'm I'm at kind of odds and ends right now. Okay. All right. That's uh that's okay. That's understandable. Um no, thank, but yeah. Thank God again, I'm rich. You know, thank God there you, go. you know I can afford it. <laughs> there you go. Um so no, yeah, I was but overpaid I mean, always, for a long time. Well, that makes it even all the better now that you can do that. But yeah, yeah you know, you're <laughs> You're welcome. I just want to let you know it's been phenomenal interviewing you. Thank you so much for coming on, and you're always welcome back on. I would love to do your, you know, you want you want to bring on some other topics so we have some new things to promote. So just be be aware that you're always welcome back on, and I hope we could keep in touch. Oh, I'd love to, and you know, I really appreciate that you had me on, and um, you asked good, incisive questions, which is like you know, kind of a pleasure. And, um, you know, talking about these things is, is, like, good for somebody who writes because, you know, in a way it just gets your mind back to, you know, getting kind of a grip on what you've been thinking about. You know, just like your questions kind of make me think, oh, you know, I hadn't really thought about that in a while. And, you know, so I, I have to thank you as much as you could thank me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I truly appreciate that. Thank you. It's a very, 
very nice compliment. And as, as I said, I put a lot of time and effort into these interviews and I can maybe, I'll tell you on the outside of, of the interview, what I do for a living because my job is just pretty intense. Um, so yeah, so to find time, you know, and this is what I do. I'm, I'm taking a day off from work and I have Peter Melman on, so it can't get any better than that. <laughs> Where are you? I'm in um, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know why I had it in my head that for some reason I thought maybe you were in Florida. I don't even know what made me think that. But It's interesting real quick because the number you call into, it's actually, you know, it's a station that I use just because, again, I got to get more savvy with technology. I'm okay with it, but not, I'm not any expert. So the number you call into is actually, I think someone said a California number because people once said to me, at least the area code is. They oh, yeah, it is. 805, yeah. Right. So they were like, oh, you're out in California. I was like, no, I'm not in California. But so... Yeah, no, I'm on the East Coast. That's where I am right now. Um, but, yeah, but, again, please um, please plug for people where they can find you, you know, share any social media or your website, and then we will wrap things up, and we will, we will definitely be in touch. Okay. All right, so you can find people, right? We can find you at uh, petermelman.com. Yes, I, uh, I, yeah. I do have a website. I don't know how it works, but. It's there. <laughs> it's there. I went to it yesterday again. It's it's there and it's it's up and running and it, everything runs smoothly with it. Um, and w- what's your Twitter handle? People can find you on Twitter too if they want to follow you. Um, I'm uh, Peter Melman. Okay. And are you on Instagram or no? I tried to find you on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, but I never post anything on Instagram. I don't know why. Gotcha. I just uh, I, I don't know. I just got to the point where I can't take it anymore. I. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of material with social media. I mean, it's it's probably endless. So, um, but again, thank you so much, Peter, for coming on today. It was, like I said, an absolute pleasure, and I, I hope we can stay in touch. Well, thank you, and um, I'm sure we will. Okay, great. Take Have a care. great day, and, and continue to be safe. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, Peter Melman, and as I said, what an amazing interview. If for some reason you tuned in late, the podcast will be available, so you can uh, download it or stream it on this site, as well as it's on iTunes, and someone told me it's on some some Google app, too, if you want to get it. So, as I said, if you tuned in late, please check it out. Amazing interview and such a great life story that he had to share today. Also, please pick up his book at hashtag me as well. It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, and all major retailers. So check it out. He's got some great books. Like he said, he also has um, It Won't Always Be This Great and another book that he wrote, which consists of essays. We didn't get a chance to get to that, is Mandela Was Late. So check out that stuff and, and definitely support him in his comedy. And also pick up a piece of his uh, Bravely, Bravely Oblivious Doodles, and you can get those on his website. So thanks again for tuning in today. I appreciate the support. Um, If you want to learn more about the show, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Carrie Edelman. I'm always posting updates. Please also follow me on my Facebook page, The Carrie Edelman Show. You can like it. And if you want to befriend me personally, there's two different um, Facebook pages I have. So just find the one that's not maxed out. All right, so I'm going to be looking for who my next guest is, um, and please just check out those different mediums, and I will be posting soon. Thanks again for the support, and have a great day.